Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private CoreCast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind the scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org donate. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankum, your old friend and buddy. I will be your host. Now, I say old friend and buddy because I meet individuals all the time and they say, you know, we go on walks together or we do a lot of gardening together, you and I. And I'm like, I'm so glad I'm the one in the MP3 player in the, the you know, the, the iPhone and not the one pulling weeds. But hey, we're friends here. I'm so grateful to be a part of your life. And uh, when, you, when you, we do meet at some point, I hope you remind me that we're friends and then I don't have to be so stiff and uncomfortable as I sometimes can be awkward. But Hey, if you're new to Leading Saints, you're in the right place because we're about to become friends, right? And do all sorts of chores together. Leading Saints is a podcast where we strive to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do so in phenomenal ways uh, with phenomenal conversations and discussions. And this is one of them. I got the opportunity to sit down with Elder Dennis Neuenschwander. Now, if that name isn't familiar to you, it's because you were born in the 90s. And you don't remember very well Elder Neuenschwander. He was made an emeritus general authority, I believe, in 2008. And so he's spoken in conference many times, uh, has a lot of experience in, uh, in developing and helping develop the church in Eastern Europe. And that's what we talk about. He's actually currently serving as a traveling patriarch. So he goes to the Baltic area of, of the world, Eastern Europe and, and whatnot, and about once a quarter, as I under, as how I understood it. And he gives several blessings, patriarchal blessings, as many as four every day, four or five. Can you imagine? There's many patriarchs listening to this thinking, there's no way, right? And the preparation that goes into a, a patriarchal blessing is, is uh, enormous. But, you know, obviously the Lord makes it possible. And uh, we, we talk about that. But we also just talk about his experience uh, working for the church in Eastern Europe and then being called as a mission president before even he actually to this point has never served as a bishop or in a stake presidency, but jumped right into being a mission president and then was called to serve as a general authority in the second quorum of the 70 and then later in the first quorum of the 70. So this is a long interview. And guess what? I'm not sorry about it because it's a fantastic interview. We kept going and I was looking at the recording. It's like, all right, we're past an hour. We're past an hour and 15. And I think this is great stuff. I'm just going to keep it going. And the beautiful thing about podcasts is that you can hit pause and come back to it later. But I promise you, you'll complete this uh, interview and be inspired by it nonetheless. So here is my interview with Elder Dennis Neuenschwander. Today, I'm in the home of Elder Dennis Neuenschwander, who is an Emeritus 70. And how are you? 
I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Well, I'm, I'm uh, happy to be here and uh, excited to hear about your experience. You have uh, a long life of leadership. Does it feel that way? No, looking back, it doesn't yeah. feel that went way. Went by fast? Went by very fast. Wow. My grandma, my brother asked my grandmother who passed away at, at 95, I think, and uh, asked her what it had like, been like to live 95 years. And she said it was like a single day. <laughs> yeah, <And> just... <laughs> So that's that's the way life passes by. Yeah. And uh, time is interesting because at the front end of an experience, it seems like the experience will last forever. And yeah. Sometimes in the midst of an experience, it feels that <laughs> it won't way. won't end. Yeah. But the days can drag by, but the weeks and the months fly by. Yeah. And then when it's over, you wonder where it's gone. Yeah, for sure. So where does the name like Neuenschwander come from? It's Swiss. Swiss. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you were raised here. And... I was raised here. My grandparents came from Switzerland. Okay. Great. And so you've led a life uh, spilling that name over and over again, right? Yeah. I always knew in school when the teacher <laughs> came to my name <laughs> yeah. the first day of school because uh, she would be able to pronounce everybody's last name. And yeah. then she would come to my name and there would be a pause and I would simply raise my hand. And... <laughs> sure. Sure. So, uh, born and raised in, in Salt Lake area and in Ogden, is that? And in Ogden. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you do your high school years? Ogden High School. Oh, okay. Great. And uh, pretty traditional upbringing then? Very traditional. Yeah. Latter-day Saints going to church and... Every week. Yeah. How would you describe the development of your testimony in those young years? Well, a lot of it was tied to activity mm-hmm. in the church, the sports, not so much scouting. I wasn't a very good scouter, but... I love the other activities, the speech contests, the music contests, the sports activities, and just the people who were around me who seemed to have a very stable outlook on life, yeah. including my mom and dad, of course. Yeah. And uh, did, did you serve a mission? I did. I served in Finland from October of 1959 to April of 1962. And were you hoping for Sweden? or? No, 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 no. I, I, uh, that, that's really a nice question because <laughs> I had begun to study Russian a little bit. Oh, wow. In the years I was called on a mission, we couldn't go until age 20. Oh, okay. And, and in between high school and age 20, I'd taken a few classes at Weber College and was working just kind of passing time to get to my mission. And once I began studying Russian, for some reason, I, had a feeling I'd like to go to Finland, and it turned out that way. Wow. And, uh, it's always been a great blessing in my life. Wow. So, and I've heard that the Finnish language is quite difficult to learn. It is, is that... difficult. Yeah, it is difficult. It has uh, 16 different cases and 28 different declensional patterns and singular and plural. So, it, it takes a while with a rather complex verbal system as well. Wow. So. And do you still use that at all? Or? You know, I pray every day and finish. You do? And, yeah. And has that been since your mission? You've mm-hmm. been there? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and I'm glad for the gift of tongues because the Lord understands what I can no longer say, but try <laughs> yeah. to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, that's a good practice to keep up. I served a Spanish-speaking mission, but I can't remember when I stopped praying in Spanish, but I definitely did at some point, which is probably unfortunate. Well, I always uh, tell the missionaries if they'll pray in their mission language, they'll always maintain it. Hmm. And it may not be as fluent or as comprehensive as it once was, but but you'll never forget it. Yeah. And uh, did you learn any other languages in your... 
not on my mission, but uh, afterwards, of course, my major language is Russian. And so I spend most of my time. Now, I'm virtually all of my time in Russian. Hmm. But uh, assignments took me and my family to Germany and to Austria. So I've spent a good deal of time in German-speaking countries. And so I, I still speak some German. Oh, wow. Enough to, That's great. So it sounds like you've always enjoyed uh, learning languages. It's been, uh, it's been a very interesting educational process, the languages, and open doors of travel and responsibilities that yeah. have given me experience. Yeah, sure. So uh, coming back from your mission, what was the plan as far as uh, your pursuit of a career? Well, I, I really didn't have a, a well-defined plan. I entered school again and began looking around for something that would inspire me, flip the switch for me yeah. in my education. Uh, during my, my missionary days, we had no missionary training center, no language training mission. So we went to Finland for two and a half years, and the language study was done in in country. Hmm. The Finnish mission had a little language course that the missionaries went through the week they came and then at three months and again at six months. And that was taught by one of the missionaries. And I was fortunate enough to be called to do that for hmm. much of my mission. So when I began looking around for something that I felt I could devote my life to, I felt nothing more than nothing more intensely than the enjoyment I had teaching Finnish. Hmm. And so I just kept up with my Russian after that and focused my attention on Russian. Nice. So did that? Did you go into education then with teaching well, languages? Well, I had intended to. I, I received a degree at Weber College and at BYU, and then a master's and a PhD at Syracuse University in New York with the idea of teaching Russian, Russian literature which I did for two years. I taught, I, I held a visiting professor's position at the University of Utah for one year and at BYU for one year, during which time I became involved with the genealogical department of the church, now family history. And uh, the department, the church was interested in expanding its acquisition programs into Eastern Europe, and I became engaged with that which led to a foreign assignment in Germany. And, and and from that point, it just seemed like it was one foreign assignment after another. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. And so when, when would you say that the your leadership path began? Uh, thank you for asking that question. I, I probably have as little leadership experience as anyone <laughs> in the church. Okay. Because my assignments were always in Eastern Europe, where uh -huh. the church was so basic. Uh -huh. I never served in a bishopric. I never served in a stake presidency. I never served in an elders quorum presidency. I did serve on two high councils, in, in uh, one in Germany and one in Sandy. But that's the extent of my leadership. And so I, once I was called as a mission president, I, I leaned heavily on the patterns I had learned from my mission presidents, and then listened carefully to the general authorities who came to visit and 
continued to do that when I was called as a general authority mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Wow. That's that's uh, interesting because typically there's sort of, you know, you gain that experience it, sort of as a momentum, right? It, but You gain it. But I, I, I've learned that there are many roads yeah. to accomplishing the work of the Lord. Yeah. And one of them can be very formal. They call as an elders quorum president or a young man into the young men's or in various perhaps leadership positions in ward or stake. And and I understand that. Mm. Uh, But my road was a lot different. I think the Lord educated me in things that he would require of me in future years by giving me a number of experiences in Eastern Europe. And that really is where I've spent my life. Mm -hmm. So was it primarily church assignments that took you to Eastern Europe then? They were all church assignments. Okay either with family history, working with the acquisition of genealogical sources throughout Eastern Europe as a mission president and then as a general authority yeah. and now as a patriarch. It's yeah. all been focused in Eastern wow, Europe. Wow, that's fascinating. And so were you like an employee of the church when you were working with family history stuff uh, early I was, on? I was. Okay. Uh, until, well, I began in uh, 19, yeah, 75, 76. Okay. When I completed my commitments to BYU and the University of Utah. As a professor? As a professor. Uh And then, as I mentioned, we went to Frankfurt, Germany. We were there for five years, and I traveled extensively through all of Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Poland, what was then Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, what was then Yugoslavia, Hungary, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. Working with local church leaders, Catholic church primarily, though some Protestant, and national archivists who had care for the records in those countries. And and, uh, so we worked, I worked exclusively with them uh, in the acquisition of genealogical sources. Gotcha. And so it sounded like the church needed someone with some experience in that world with that the language ability to go and... and it, it began actually with the language. And I was teaching at the U and one of my students whose mother happened to be working for the genealogical department asked me one evening during our classes what I intended to do after my one-year assignment at the U. And I I told her I was looking for other work, uh, obviously. And she said, well, you should go check the genealogical department. And they're going to open the work in Eastern Europe. And so her mother did help me make the contacts. And I went to an interview and I guess it went all right. A few (laughs) weeks later, Elder Theodore M. Burton called me and wanted to know if I would like to work on a presentation for the Russian embassy on in Washington on microfilming, which I agreed to do. And within a few weeks, uh, I went back to Washington with others in the department. We made a presentation to the Russian embassy on microfilming. So the beginning was, was language. And yeah. then I was offered a, a position that then opened up other opportunities. Yeah, for sure. So when you're offered that position, is it was a position where you would need to live and move your family out there? We did for five years. And in 82, we returned and I held other responsibilities in the genealogical department for international acquisitions, 
including Eastern Europe. I, I did that for another five years, and then in 1987 was called as a mission president oh, okay. for Eastern Europe. Gotcha. And so was that called as a mission president? That was sort of the first uh, calling as in, as a uh, lay leader in in the work you were doing. Before that, it was working for the church, but as a, an employee. Uh, as an employee, and as I mentioned, I held two positions on high council, oh, sure. and that was it. Yeah. I... The mission in 1987 was a newly formed mission called the Austria-Vienna East Mission. Its headquarters was in Vienna, and we lived in Vienna, but had no responsibility for Austria. We simply lived there. And I traveled into my mission, which stretched from Poland in the north to Greece on the south, mm -hmm. and eventually into Turkey. and. Um, Cyprus and Egypt and uh, wow, and that's a large countries. area. <laughs> it was a large area. We didn't have a, a, a lot of missionaries, and the church was very young. Elder Spence Condi had been supervising that area out of his position uh, as the mission president in Austria. Oh, okay, but of course, in the middle eighties, there were a number of changes underway and particularly in central europe yeah say the least um, for sure <laughs> uh, which provided opportunity for some expansion and uh, the brethren simply felt uh, i suppose that the time was right to spend a little more put a little more focus on yeah on eastern europe and yeah. So I'm curious during that, those five years you lived, you know, as an employee working for the, the family history department, what was it like in Eastern Europe being a Latter-day Saint during that, that time? I mean, it's a different world now, really. It was a very different world and it was a different world then. Yeah. Very controlled uh, communist hegemony across Central and Eastern Europe, the, the Berlin Wall, the the Iron Curtain, so yeah. to speak, was still uh, very, they were still very strong. And, uh, of course, the U.S. military uh, had a great presence in in Germany and uh, in Europe because of the Cold War. And that was very much a part of the work. I required to have a visa required a visa to go into every one of the countries I traveled to, with the exception of Yugoslavia. And it was quite time consuming to travel there, to obtain visas and and to travel there. The um, we had very little church, if any church presence in those countries at the time. Uh -huh. So it was it was a matter of, of of making contact with people who had uh, responsibility for the records uh, that we were interested in. I, I just tried not to give any provocation for any difficulty or yeah, yeah. problem, uh, knowing that that these were yet communist countries, and I was an American. And yeah, uh, but I was always treated well and treated nicely and um, with great respect, yeah. uh, which I tried to do for them. Yeah, and. Uh, during those years, uh, made very many wonderful contacts. It was really impossible to take any literature in with me. Even personal scriptures were sometimes difficult. So you traveled uh, light, I would imagine. Traveled very light, and 
one once in a while could find an old copy of the International Herald Tribune or one of the U.S. news magazines. But of course, in those years, there was no such thing as internet or uh, right, yeah, cell phones or uh, any kind of yeah. They could really lock it, that, lock it down. Yeah, the the information was closely controlled. Yeah. So as you travel, I mean, could you not even take your scriptures to study? Or <laughs> oh, I I took them. Yeah, um, you just had to be careful uh, with. Yeah, yeah, just had to be careful. Nice. So, what was like? Did you have a young family at this time living over there with you? Yeah. So, what was like a a typical Sunday like with your family? A typical Sunday? Yeah, I mean, you obviously didn't just like here. Uh, Okay. I I usually did not travel on the weekends. I was home uh, many of the weekends, and our oldest at the time was uh, just eleven or twelve. And our youngest was 18 months. Wow. And so it was a great experience education-wise. They had a great experience. We lived in a suburb of Frankfurt, a little village called Bad Vilbel. And uh, the church owned uh, a street of homes that had been constructed by building missionaries. So we lived there. The... uh, yeah, typical Sunday is like a typical Sunday here. We'd get up and go to church. And mm-hmm. Was it like a local branch there or was it a ward? ward. Okay. We, uh, we first attended the German ward and for probably two, three years maybe, and then decided as the kids got more involved in scouting and other kinds of activities that we moved over to the English-speaking ward. It was in the military stake. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so you went to church and just carried on with life. Yeah. yeah. Went home, had dinner. And yeah. Enjoyed afternoon. I often would go to the parks or go. There was a nice park not far from where we lived, a nice pond and ducks. And Wow. So did your kids uh, grow up learning German? or They all speak German. And wow. actually, when we speak of home, we often think of Germany yeah. because we were there in their very formative years. Yeah, I bet. Wow. So what do you remember from uh, that? What's the story of you being called as a, as a mission president? What do you remember of that experience? Well, we received a call from President Nelson's, then Elder Nelson's office for an interview, which we went. It was in uh, June. We didn't have a lot of time to get ready for this mission. Six weeks was at all. So it was May. I'd have to look at the exact date. But we were interviewed. He said that, of course, there was no commitment on the church's part, that it was exploratory. But within a few days, President Monson called us and issued us a call to serve in what was then the, what would be called the Austria Vienna East. Mission. And it, this was being created at the time. It was being created mm-hmm. uh, uh, from a division of uh, the Austria mission. And the, they told us the headquarters would be in, in Vienna. And interestingly, we while we were living in Frankfurt, because of Vienna's location to its proximity to Central Europe, we had really considered moving to Vienna hmm. to make it easier traveling. And we ultimately decided against that, but but here we were now going to Vienna. So we had had a little experience moving around Vienna, but 
Uh, we we had about six weeks, five weeks to get ready to go on the mission and care for everything that needed to be done. Re-roofed our house. We <laughs> had a couple of soccer tournaments with the kids in the meantime. And uh, our two older boys were on missions at the time. And so we informed them. And we had interesting experiences. Our two youngest uh, each had... A premonition uh, through uh, dreams and feelings uh, that we were returning to Europe, and each asked before we informed them. Actually, mm -hmm. we so were you back in the United States when we the call were came? Back in the United States, oh, okay. and had been for five years. Oh, okay. So you spent five years in Eastern Europe, then you were able to come back here for five years, and then we left. And you worked uh, doing family history mm -hmm. uh, exactly. business just here. Mm -hmm. Nice. And so, you, and were you sort of hoping you'd maybe go back there since you enjoyed your time there so much? Well, we or? enjoyed it, but we had no, yeah, no concept of, yeah, of going back. Right. I mean, we had been there already as employees. Yeah. And I didn't, I certainly didn't think there there would be another opportunity to go back mm -hmm. there. We all loved it. Our our boys loved it, and we loved being abroad. My experience in Finland uh, as a missionary, I I feel comfortable in Europe. Yeah. So away you go. And, and it sounds like, did you have a, a number of teenagers going with you? Is that? On the mission? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, two. Oh, okay. Uh, the two older ones were on their missions already. One in New Mexico, one in Germany, actually. Oh, wow. And then the two younger ones went with us to Vienna. Nice. And so at this point, like you said, that you had no reference point as far as uh, church leadership goes. I mean, you haven't. No, no, it, it was it was a complete shock. Was that something you thought about, or or no, whether it was no, death no, for me? Or, yeah, or, no, it, it came as a complete surprise. To yeah, me. you're right, right, right. But, but you, um, so where did you feel like did you feel like a level of inexperience with these things, or did you just jump in? And Not I really, guess everybody uh, does. Uh, from uh, from a church point of view, yes, yeah. But the church was uh, was so minimally organized in nineteen in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, and I had been traveling there already for thirteen years, so I was well acquainted hmm. with the countries, and I was well acquainted with the missionary couples who were serving. Uh, I was well known in the government circles, and, and wow. Uh, the, so for me, the preparation was not so much, not so much leadership as it was perhaps not being fearful of being in gotcha. Eastern Europe. Yeah, you felt comfortable there, like you said. It was I, a, I felt a, very comfortable. Another home for you. It, it so. was another home for me, and and the other things I could learn, and I had good teachers mm -hmm. to teach me what I needed to know in terms of the church. Yeah. So anything uh, as far as that transition of the beginning as a, a mission president that stands out in, in your memory? Well, uh, the mission began with 34 missionaries, only 12 elders. Wow. Everyone else, uh, couples. We had couples in Poland, in Hungary, in Yugoslavia, and Greece. We had elders in Yugoslavia, Greece, and in uh, two in Hungary. The church organization was was quite simple. So the immediate the immediate challenge was number one was relationship with the local governments in finding ways to 
permit uh, a growing church organization and growing church presence. President Nelson, of course, did much of that work along with Hans Rinker in the area of presidency. I followed in their footsteps wherever they went. Then I just followed up after they gotcha. left with yeah, yeah. making sure that the commitments they made were met. And so part of the work was just what I had been doing with family history, and that was developing relationships and developing trust, getting people to know who we were, uh, what the church was, what it could do. And but as the uh, and these were years of of tremendous change in Eastern Europe. The in 1985 temple in Freiburg had been dedicated in 1987. Our mission was created for Eastern Europe. The Berlin Wall fell mm -hmm. November eight and nine of nineteen of eighty nine, and then of course the collapse of the Soviet Union in nineteen ninety one. So every two years, there were major events, political events, that permitted the church to, to expand its activities, and and then that's what we did. Yeah. And so it sounds like in a developing area like that, where the church is developing anyways, that you get a lot of 70s and apostles that are coming and going, sort of building those relationships, and you, your role is to help maintain those. President Nelson was the one and, and, and Elder Rinker in the area president. Those two were the, making the initial contacts. Yeah. They were doing that work. Mine, my work was dealing with the missionaries, maintaining those contacts, trying to expand upon them. Yeah, nice. So as far as that, uh, so you started with 35 missionaries and they all came like you knew. This is a new new mission for all of us, right? A new mission for all of us. Yeah. and. The challenge was to organize it. Uh, to, for me, the challenge was to make it look and feel like a mission. Yeah, that that there was a mission president. There were missionaries that we would build branches, and and all of these had to be in a certain pattern. We couldn't we couldn't be haphazard in what we were doing. <laughs> Realizing that these were the first steps, we knew that those first steps had to lead where we needed to go, uh -huh. even though it seemed difficult and maybe even excessive in the beginning to set those patterns. Hmm. But we had to set those patterns because if we didn't, we either had to change those patterns at some other time or uh, at the very least, what we were doing is teaching funny organizational principles to to our new members of the church we had to put build a pattern around what we were doing hmm. and that pattern had to be the pattern of the priesthood yeah and so it sounds like that it wasn't you know i think you know if you were a mission president in latin america where it's just that there's so many baptisms happening there and and it's easy to stay focused on baptism, but in, in your case, it wasn't, baptisms could maybe get out of control too quickly. Uh, they could get out of control quickly. And in uh, we, we found that we had to be very careful with the numbers of people coming to church because mm -hmm. we weren't responsible for the people coming to church. We were responsible for the members who were coming to church. Oh, yeah. And we could have 50 people, 60, 70 people come to a, a a meeting, and you'd say, oh, the church is doing so well. But if we only had 10 members, we had to know where those 10 members were yeah. among those 50. Huh, interesting. And that's 
Well, we had to. Yeah, where maybe more established areas, the members sort of just take care of themselves, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And was a lot of, as far as like, if you were uh, some of your missionaries, were they more involved in the, the leadership and establishment of some of those patterns? Or? They were. We had to establish the patterns in the missionaries' lives, first of all, mm-hmm. that the Austria-Vienna-East mission had to look and feel like a mission. Mm. And the missionaries had to feel a responsibility to establishing the pattern of, of worship among the new members of the church. And as strange as it may sound, even in the use of language. In Yugoslavia, for example, all of our meetings were in English. Hmm. And when I realized that, I gathered the missionaries together and I said, well, how, how, how can you preach the gospel to, to the people here in Croatia or Serbia if we're speaking English? Then you can only speak about the gospel to those who understand English. Hmm. And uh, when so I told him right there on the spot, I said, no more English. That's it. Hmm. From this moment on, it will be Croatian in our meetings. Some of them protested about, well, we don't speak Croatian. I said, well, that's your Start learning that. <laughs> you've got to learn it because we cannot build a church in Croatia on English. Yeah. It has to be Croatian. Wow. And I would imagine, I mean, there's so many different countries in, in the in what you presided over that you were trying to keep track of a lot of missionaries and languages and, and well, processes. It, it was. I w- would travel a lot. We had no cell phones. We had no internet. The missionaries were on their own. Yeah. They, they had to set goals for themselves and pursue those goals. We had We knew that what we were doing there was establishing the church, but it had to be established in the way the Lord wished it to be established. Yeah. So going back to say you were very intentional of helping the missionaries feel like they were in a normal mission, I mean, or on a mission, right? So what what did that look like or, or how did you go about doing that? As the number of missionaries increased, we uh, divided the cities into proselyting areas so they felt responsible for an area. We, to the extent possible, we established a mission organization. I never had any assistants, hmm. but each country had a zone leader. And I made trips to each country about every five, six, six to eight weeks. Uh-huh. I could do it. I, with the num- amount of travel, it was hard to do it much more quickly than that. And, but I had regular interviews with the missionaries. I knew that they could not accomplish what they were sent to do unless they had a very clear concept of what it was they were about. Hmm. I didn't think that I could build uh, rules for them. They had to feel some kind of inner responsibility for what they were doing. I tried to do that by having them set their own goals, which I kept track of. And then we spoke in each interview about what they were accomplished. We tried to organize the branches as much as possible along the priesthood lines, simple programs, simple leadership principles. That, that was actually one of the goals. My mission was to have the missionaries act in every in every possible way 
as a missionary of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hmm. Yeah. And I love that, that you re- you recognize that you're in an area where they need a certain level of autonomy to accomplish what they do, but you also need to bring them structure so that they can thrive. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and the structure was a, a challenge, too, because... Uh, because there hadn't been a lot of structure. There were only, there was a couple and maybe two, a set of missionaries. So that it, it was almost like, you know, living with your grandparents. And then <laughs> oh, yeah. We had to, we had to get them out into apartments and on their own and feeling independent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then that took, that took a lot. And, and uh, my one of the challenges I had many challenges because the the governments of, of Central Europe were changing very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, but in the law there were no provisions for a, a transfer of, of funds or of, of visas for missionaries <laughs> or wow. for. Uh, rental of properties or uh, meeting regularly in a certain spot. Uh, all of these had to be resolved in some way. Hmm. And uh, I, uh, I, I worked on that incessantly. And uh, just one example of, a principle of leadership that was very, very important to me. Uh, I was trying to work out how to get money to the missionaries, how to get visas, how to get material. Uh, All of these things had to be defined somehow and uh, cared for. And uh, one day I just was... uh, basically had it. I was just overwhelmed by all these problems. And so I called Elder Hans Rinker on the phone. He's at he uh, 70 he, in the area? He was in the area presidency, okay. in my first contact in the area presidency. A longtime friend, wonderful friend, and but very stern and very focused on what needed to be done. And I called and began to complain to him about you know, I just don't know how to solve these problems and how to deal with them. They're just more than I can handle. And within about, oh, I'd say 15 seconds, he stopped me and he said, President, he said, um, I knew him well enough that, that I knew our conversation was over at that point. And uh, he said, President, we sent you there to solve those problems, not complain about them. <laughs> Now you just go have a nice day now. Do you have any other questions for me? I said, no, sir. That was it. Nice. But it was one of the great leadership principles that I learned that he taught me in that very brief phone conversation. <laughs> yeah. And that is that if I didn't solve those problems, there wasn't anyone else who could. Yeah. I was called to do that. And it focused my attention on what I had to do and that it was my responsibility to do it. I could not pass it to another. And it's a principle that I have used over and over again in my teaching as a general authority or even in my own life, that if I'm given a responsibility, it is I 
who must carry it out. Hmm. I cannot procrastinate it. I cannot avoid it. I cannot pretend that it isn't there. I can't give it to another. If it's given to me, I have that responsibility. Wow. That's powerful. It's empowering, right? That, it's to get in that state, state of mind. Yeah. It's very empowering. And, and so many other decisions come out of that. For example, how, how was I to teach my zone leaders? I couldn't bring them to Vienna on a regular basis, like we do now with leadership. Yeah, it's you know, it, very I mean, simple. The, the, yeah. the distances and the, the visas were all difficult. And uh, so I pondered that and prayed about it a lot. And, uh, and finally, it dawned on me that, that I could change my zone leaders every six months. And I would do it all at once across the mission. And then at the beginning of that six months, I would call the mission, the, the zone leaders to, to Vienna. And we would spend two or three days discussing what we would do in the next six months. Hmm. And, uh, but I didn't know whether the area presidency would agree with that because it was expensive. Oh, really? To bring missionaries to Vienna from Poland and from Greece. And, oh, yeah. I, I bet. And, and time-consuming, I would time imagine. Time-consuming, yeah. And it, but I thought that was the way that I, I, it, it was the way that I could have missionary leaders who reflected a concept of what needed to be done, hmm. and and they had a, a foundation then for judgment on what could and could not be done. That they had to make those decisions because they couldn't call me; they never knew where I was. Wow! Yeah, and so they had to make those decisions, and. But I called Elder Rinker and uh, with a great deal of trepidation explained to him <laughs> my resolution to this problem. And uh, there was a, a silence and I thought, oh, he is going to lambast me with it. <laughs> and, and he said, President, it's about time you solve that problem. Now take care of it. Wow. And it, but like you say, it was empowering yeah. that that I had that responsibility. I had to come up with a solution. I yeah. was the one who had to take the responsibility of making a recommendation. Yeah. And sometimes you can be paralyzing in those moments to make a decision because you feel like the, the guy above you is not going to like it, He's right? He's not going to like it. So you'd rather have him make the, the solve the problem. Have him make this. <laughs> yeah. And yet he has other things to resolve. Yeah. He's he got his own problems. Yeah. Mine, right? And But I learned out of that that if you have a responsibility and you take it seriously and you think about it and ponder it, pray about it, that you can make a recommendation that solves the problem. Yeah. And those who presided over me saw the problems, but they didn't see the solutions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it was my job to call to take a resolution to the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they they were tremendous leadership uh, teachings for me. Hmm. And uh, we had in those years, after general conference, all of the stake presidents and mission presidents were called to Frankfurt, where the area offices were, still are, for Europe. And we would uh, spend a Saturday, Friday night and a Saturday, and the general authorities, the area presidents, would instruct us in what? They had received a general conference. In a sense, our marching orders for the mm -hmm. next six months. Yeah. And, but I sat there always wondering what I was doing there because they were talking about state commissions, about 
<laughs> things that went on in wards and, and stakes. And I mean, I was just trying to hold things together, <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to get somebody to know how to conduct a, a meeting correctly yeah. or to do an interview. Uh, the, 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 the problems were maybe the same, but not quite as intense. Yeah. You know, there uh -huh. wasn't as much organizational structure to deal with in Eastern Europe. So I sat there and wondered, what am I doing here listening to all this stuff? And out of that, Elder Carlos A.C. said something that just stood out to me. I don't know the context in which he was speaking, but it felt to me like he just addressed those words to me. And But he said, brethren, we are builders of the kingdom, not its caretakers. And I wrote that down, and it became a very important part of my leadership training with elders as well as new priesthood leaders, that we were builders of the kingdom. We were not there just to manage things and to keep them running. We were to build on what it was we had wow. received. And it, these little experiences created an incredible concept in my mind of what had to be accomplished in Eastern Europe in the sense of establishing the appropriate pattern of growth. Yeah. Because as you mentioned, these different, you know, you can be overwhelmed with these administrative tasks of, I just need to make sure all my missionaries have money to feed themselves with, yeah. right? You can get caught up and it sounds like you had so many of those that you can sort of just maintain the status quo of, okay, well, at least all the missionaries are, are feeding or getting yeah, fed. I, I don't know if, I don't know if they're talking to anybody or teaching anybody, yeah. but at least they're fed, you know, yeah. and you can get uh, overcome with those. And I, and I even imagine, you know, I remember my time as a bishop here in Salt Lake, it's like, you can get so caught up in, okay, as are the lights going to be on and the doors unlocked on Sunday, yeah. but we forget like, no, we're actually trying to move the football down the field here yeah. rather we're than just building something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's we're a powerful principle. Do. Yeah. Accomplish something. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. And I would imagine going back to those six months, uh, every six months, you'd have a, a leadership conference with your zone leaders. Mm -hmm. That was probably some, a place you could establish some vision and empower them to say, listen, you may not see me for six months. So it's up to you. It's Here's some principles and go forth. Yeah. Right. And I never went into uh, those meetings with an agenda. Hmm. Uh, probably that was a poor leadership principle, but. I felt that we had to counsel together and decide because Poland was different from Hungary, was different from Yugoslavia, was different from Greece. Mm -hmm. And yet there were certain fundamental principles that had to be adhered to across the board in all of those missions, but applied in a little different way. Yeah. Perhaps. Wow. And uh, so we just sat around the table for for a whole weekend and just discussed what, where are we going the next yeah. six months? And there's just a handful of you, right? It's, yeah, there were just four or five of us. Oh, wow. And wow, that's a, that was probably some enriching uh, leadership time for sure. For them and for me. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And, and probably the inspiration that came mm -hmm. was, was yeah. incredible. Anything else from those, uh, I assume it was three years that you were... I was actually four years. Oh, four years. You got a bonus year. I got most, a bonus year. <laughs> and uh, any particular reason why that was the case or... Well... In 1990, which was the termination of my three years, we had a number of missions established independently of our mission out of the Vienna East Mission, Poland, 
was established as an independent mission. Hungary was, Czechoslovakia was, Greece was. And also, in 1989, the responsibility for uh, northern Russia, St. Petersburg, and uh, for Estonia and uh, the other Baltic states, went over to Finland from our mission. I was handling those up until 1989. And... Then it went over to their to the Helsinki mission, and uh, so I was left with Yugoslavia. That was it. in In 1990, I had 12 missionaries again. Oh, wow. we had uh, we had built the missionary numbers up to about 90 across the Central Europe countries, in anticipation of of establishing independent missions in in each of those countries. But in 1990, then, we moved further east. Uh, I took uh, missionaries to to Ukraine in October of 1990. We opened uh, with missionaries in Bulgaria also in, I think, September. By November, we had missionaries in Romania. So we began again yeah. with uh, establishing further east. Huh the church and rather than i mean that by then the handwriting was on the wall our mission our mission had a numbered numbered days okay elder ringer had told me to go destroy my mission (laughs) which i did but because uh, it was obviously at this point you could split up all these areas we were beginning to yeah Yeah. and that's the progress we wanted to see that was what we wanted to do and so rather than call someone else okay they just said would you stay another year and do this other work, which we did. And, oh, interesting. Uh, so you then, weren't, you didn't replace anybody, nor did anybody replace you. Yes and no. Uh, Brother uh, President uh, Howard Bidulf came as the mission president in Ukraine, but he did not have a visa yet or a place to live. And so he came to the mission home in Vienna. So for a few months after I left, there was... Vienna East Mission, but it was just Ukraine. Oh, gotcha. And as soon as he got the visa to go to Ukraine, then then the Vienna East Mission ceased to exist. Wow. So, yeah. It was, oh, that's that's it was, interesting. So, so you really went there and sort of got things started, and then they were able to create those missions, and yeah, off you went. And then I was done. Nice. A- any other leadership principles that uh, that would best fit in the context of the, of you serving as a mission president there? Yeah, I. There were some things. In 1977, President Kimball, in August of 1977, President Kimball dedicated Poland and uh, for the preaching of the gospel. The 70s were a very traumatic time for Poland. Hmm. Uh, worker strikes, uh, within a few years, then uh, the Solidarity Movement with uh, Lech Wałęsa started martial law. It was a very difficult time. But but in, in the midst of these changes, President Kimball went to Poland as set up and organized by uh, uh, Brother Kennedy and dedicated Poland. And, and as part of that, the church had some legal standing, hmm. but we had no members. Well, few members. Right. Yeah, sure. And uh, we had three men, and and uh, the Polish government said, "Well, you have to have three men as a you know 
to be a church. To be a troika, you know, there has to be some yeah. organization. And uh, I don't think they ever met as a presidency, but uh, one of those brethren was uh, a man in Poznan in western Poland, and we had a, a really good microfilming project going in Poland in the late 70s in the Poznan uh, archdiocese. And so I was over there every month or so. And I got to know Brother Barschow, who was the counselor in the presidency, and would visit his family, and we would talk. And I had no ecclesiastical responsibility, but I was one traveling there, mm -hmm. so we visited. And one night he told me, he said, do you know, Brother Nunch, wonder what the church needs in Poland? And I said, no, what is that? And he said, well, uh, he said, the church needs men who understand the system. And that made a lot of sense in a way mm -hmm. because of the party and so much was done in these countries by personal contact, uh, which I had learned in the microfilming. Mm -hmm. Advantages were gained by personal relationships. And what he was telling me was that if the church wants to make headway, it has to, in a sense, play ball with people who have power. Yeah. And, and now I was not a, I was not an ecclesiastical leader at the time. And, but when he told me that, there was just something that I, that didn't quite, didn't quite make sense to me. Mm -hmm. It bothered me. And, and I thought, how am I going to answer that? Because it makes sense. Logically, it makes sense. And then I was given what I needed to say. And I don't know that it was as much for Brother Barshov as it was for me. Mm -hmm. But I said, Brother Barshov, what the church needs in Poland are not men who understand the system, but men who understand the priesthood. Hmm. And I, over the years, I mean, even now, after, you know, 40 years, I remember that moment. Wow. Because of what it taught me. And I think the Lord was helping me to see something that I would use over and over again in coming years, that we needed to establish the priesthood, and we needed men who understood priesthood leadership principles and the principles of priesthood power, hmm. and how to use that in serving. And well, within a few years, Communist Party collapsed. And where would the church have been had we have tied our our wagon to, to the power structure. Yeah, or the right? system, right? To yeah. the system. Yeah. And the Catholic Church had learned that lesson very, I mean, very painfully hmm. because they had supported the solidarity movement and they had become, the Catholic Church had become very, very politically active. Hmm. So when that system broke down, their, their foundation broke down in that area. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And the Cardinal Vyshinsky, I think was his name, said to the church, we have lost our bearings. Wow. We got caught up in the politics and forgot the moral imperative we have. Hmm. And we can never, we can never do that in the church. The Lord says that the, 
that the church is to be independent upon above all other institutions, and therefore it can't be beholden to any power structure, only to itself. Yeah. Now it can exist in a variety of power structures. It can visit. It can exist well in all kinds of government systems. It works better where there's more freedom, but it can work elsewhere under under restrictions. Yeah. But it has to be its own. It has to be its own system. Yeah. And that little experience taught me something that, again, I used repeatedly in trying to establish a patterned, a patterned structure of worship in those beginning years of yeah. Central and Eastern. Wow, that's powerful. And even now in our own country, you know, as times change and develop and progress, it's sort of tempting, you know, you, you sort of hear the, the clamor to, hey, you know, it's a new time. We need to adjust certain things, but uh, it's not about adjusting to the system that we're surrounded by, but all, always coming back to the priesthood, to the doctrines. and Always and coming back to the priesthood. Yeah. Because if you, if you don't have the priesthood, you don't have the church. Yeah. You may have a nice social organization. You might have a nice group of people who like getting together, but you don't have the church yeah. because it's in the in the priesthood, in the ordinances and the keys yeah. that the church is structured. Yeah. And it can sometimes appear when the system is headed in a different direction. Maybe the church can't flourish during that moment, but we have to stay true to that we later have, on. We have to stay true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. So you come home from mission after four years. Well, I uh, I did come home, but only for a couple of weeks. Uh, so what happened then? <laughs> in, in March, President, uh, in March of 1991, uh, we uh, the kids were out of school, and we were planning to take a, a long mission tour to take them down through Yugoslavia and Bulgaria and come up through Romania and back to Vienna. Sort of a last hurrah before you... Yeah, your mission. yeah, and uh, yeah. Fundamentally, I wanted they had they'd been to Bulgaria a number of times. They'd been to Yugoslavia a lot, but they'd never been to Romania. Okay, and I wanted them to see that. So we were going to make uh, take their their uh, spring break and just do a mission tour in that part of the mission. And President Monson called one night and uh, said, uh, "We understand your." Uh, this was in March, and he said, "We understand you're going to take a, a long mission tour. We won't be able to find you." I said, "That's probably true." And then he <laughs> extended a, a call to me to serve in the Second Quorum of the Seventy. Oh wow! And uh, again, not seeing that coming at no, all. <laughs> no, no, in no way. And uh, I returned. We actually were having a birthday party for one of our friends uh, in the mission home, and so we. I went back and and. Uh, we finished up the evening, and when we were finishing up our day, uh, I asked my wife, I said, how much do you love me? And <laughs> and then she knew exactly what was happening, and uh, she uh, said, who, who was on the phone? <laughs> I said, it was President Monson, and, and, you know, what did he want? And then I explained the call, and so that's how I was called in, and... Uh, then we were eventually assigned to Frankfurt. Hmm. So in the area presidency, there. in the area presidency mm -hmm. in Frankfurt, and so I'd I'd spent five years in Frankfurt, and then came back for five years here. Went four years to Vienna, and then the next five years we were in 
Frankfurt wow. again. So how so, old were you at the time when you were called in as a 70? I, I, I was 51, I think. Oh, okay. So you knew you were in, uh, I, and at that time. No, it was a second quorum call. Oh, that's so, right. So. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, five, it, was it five years at that point? Is uh, roughly well, or? it was undefined at that point. Oh, okay. But. But you knew it wasn't till you're 70. That, okay. Well, it, it, nobody knew that in those years that it was just till 70. Oh, gotcha. That okay. came a few years later. But a couple of years later, then President Monson called me into the first quorum. And, oh, okay. And uh, that settled our, you know, the rest of our yeah, you, service life. You could plan a little bit better. Yeah. Going. Mm -hmm. Nice. So uh, during that time, I mean, there's so much to cover. And with You've led quite the vast life here. So, any principles or thoughts or experiences coming out of that time as as yeah, a seventy? Yeah, I there there were a couple of things. I we July is a month where we where the general authorities generally take some time for their families, and we didn't need to report to our areas until the middle of August. Now it's the first of August, but then it was the middle of August. So that gave me two weeks after the summer break, two weekends to go on, to go to a state conference. Uh -huh. <laughs> and my first conference was, was with President Packer. Hmm. We had a reorganization in Wellsville. And, but during that weekend, I asked him uh, really on the way home what he would counsel me for work in Eastern Europe. Now, I had worked there for four years in, in, in genealogy 10 years before right. that. So I- You could almost know that area better than he would, right? I, yeah. I, I probably knew the area better, uh -huh. but, but I was asking for something else. And uh, he was uh, very quiet, didn't answer immediately. And then he said something that was so profound to me. He said, keep them in the pioneering mode as long as possible. Hmm. In other words, don't burden them with structure hmm. that they can't handle. And we did that as long as we could, but boy, that was a battle. Yeah. Because as soon as the church begins to put some roots into the ground, everybody feels that, that the church can't be there unless they're particular activity is there also. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we just couldn't stop it. It was like the floodgates coming. And uh, and, and that's too bad. We, yeah. we did keep them in the pioneering mode as long as possible, but it wasn't as long yeah. as we wanted. And is, was there any particular way that you did that? Because I would imagine it's easy to sort of measure your success as far as how much structure is being built, right? So is there anything you did to keep them there? Well, we we tried to keep the branches fairly small. Because we had inexperienced leaders. We yeah. wanted to build experience in the leaders, but we knew it took time to gain experience. Yeah. And so we wanted the branches somewhere around 30 people or 40 people, not more, because we didn't, first of all, didn't have the leadership for that. And the priesthood structure, they, the, the brethren were all new converts to the church. And you know, just the fundamental ideas of of interviews or priesthood progression or, you know, just getting the branch together on Sunday. These were, yeah. these were monumental <laughs> achievements. Yeah, that we take for granted, right? That we take for granted. And uh, sometimes Saturday, the place we had rented would say we decided not to rent to you. <laughs> no. They had to fix that. And, but 
we wanted to keep them keep them small so that we could keep the structure small so that it was very simple hmm. for them hmm. and they could gain experience in a in a small yeah you know small branch yeah and so that was one of the things uh, that we did to keep it as simple as we could we took the auxiliaries realizing that we had to do something with the auxiliaries and uh, we tasked our wives with making just a one page summary of each auxiliary and that's what we taught we hmm. didn't use the handbooks we didn't i mean we took the material out of the handbooks right. but distilled it to the yeah most basic concepts. You didn't want to overburden one with a big manual, right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so there were a number of things that we did, but but it was hard to keep the complexity out of it. Yeah. And uh, it's still a challenge in Eastern Europe. Yeah, I bet. The, the complexity of the church is it's too complex. Huh. And uh, so that that was a, a challenge. But but this advice from President Packer was extremely helpful yeah and i think he saw he, he was a true seer he saw yeah what would happen if we were not careful yeah and uh he knew the personality of the of the bureaucracy <laughs> and <laughs> yeah that it would it would just spread out yeah to, you know. that, that is such a fascinating concept i mean you know think of a stake president in sandy utah and think how can we Move our people to a more pioneer state of mind. You exactly. Know? When we had it there. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we had it there. And we had, I had a very interesting uh, experience with President Ballard in when I came back to Salt Lake in um, 1996. Uh, I was in the Utah South area and uh, I had, I knew very little about the church in Utah, mm -hmm. even though I'd grown up here. Right. I didn't, I knew very little. So when I was assigned to the Utah South area, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to learn. And every state, every state conference, I would go Thursday or Friday and visit every bishop storehouse, every desert industries, every slaughter house, the, the anything the lots, church owned, right? Anything the church owned. Yeah. I went to visit. And, uh, but, and it was great lesson for me, great teachings. And we had what we called area leadership training, kind of what we did in Europe, mm -hmm. where the area presidency would gather in the area, all the stake presidents for a Friday night, Saturday morning session. And a member of the 12 would come. And, um, and Elder Ballard came. And this was right after I came back. And we were in Provo, and I was so intimidated by all these brethren who were so accomplished in so many areas of, you know, academics and business, politics, just really acclaimed leaders. And I just thought, what in the world could I even say to them? What am I even doing here? And then... President Ballard, Elder Ballard at the time, began talking to them about what they should, and what did he teach them? Read the scriptures. Pray every day. Treat your families well. This is what he taught. Hmm. And I thought, well, 
that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and then he turned to me in the middle of all this. He said, Dennis, he said, why don't you come and tell them a little bit about Eastern Europe? And so I went up to the pulpit and I said, brother, I have to be honest with you. I was really intimidated to come to this meeting today because of your accomplishments. And then I heard Elder Ballard teach you today. And what did he tell you? Read the scriptures. Pray every day. Treat your families well. I said, that's what I've been doing for five years in Eastern Europe, mm. <laughs> is holding up the Book of Mormon saying, brethren and sisters, this is scripture. We read it. Yeah. And don't forget to pray every day and learn how to treat your families well. And I said, now, I'm not intimidated by you at all. If a member of the Twelve can teach you those very principles, and that's what I've been teaching in Eastern Europe now for 10 years, then I can teach you that too. Wow, that's, and, that's powerful. Yeah. And, and really what comes to mind is as, as a leader, part of our role is to just simplify the focus, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. because it, it can be intimidating, especially when you're around these accomplished it individuals, can, but we're all striving to do the same thing. We all have to pay attention to the fundamentals. Yeah, fundamentals are, are powerful. So I want to definitely touch on your, your calling now, and, and that's it's a unique uh, position of what you do. And anything else before we move on to that, that I don't I want to make sure um, we, we capture it all. You know, I did want to say uh, one thing about about President Hinckley. He, for me, is, was, still is, the image of a leader that I would like to be. Hmm. And I had a, a number of experiences, but one I would share. He was planning to come to Russia and had asked me to figure out an itinerary for him. And, and at a general conference, he called me to his office and we talked about it. It didn't materialize. But in the middle of our conversation, he said to me, Dennis, do you still speak Finnish? And I was so overwhelmed by that. Number one, that he would know my name was something hmm. special for me. And number two, that he would know that I had served in Finland. And he asked me about it. And... I said, President, I do still speak Finnish. And he said, good. And he turned to his secretary and he said, you make sure before he comes home, he has an assignment in Finland. Yeah. So he made sure that I got to Finland. And, but for me, just that he knew who I was, that I was not just, I'm sure I was just one among many, for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I think he made everybody feel that way. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what? an incredible characteristic it is of a leader to know those he is leading. Mm -hmm. And um, that happened again uh, to me in, in 1990, in 2006, in, in 2000, uh, yeah, 2006, when the uh, Helsinki Temple was dedicated. As I'd been serving as the area president again, in Moscow, and we had, it was my responsibility to make sure that our portion of the temple dedication was, you know, proceeding. But 
and that the dedication was in October. And in that year, my wife became very ill with cancer, and hmm. we had to come home. But I went back in September to gather our things up, and President Hinckley said, why don't you come to the Helsinki Temple dedication with me? Hmm. I mean, he knew my two great loves of Finland and Russia. Yeah. And, but he did, he only permitted me to speak once. I was the area president up till just a couple of days before the dedication. <laughs> and Elder Paul Piper then became the area president. And President Hinckley called on him as the area president. Yeah. But what did he do with me? He permitted me to speak in one of the sessions briefly. And then he asked me to read the dedicatory prayer in Finnish in the two following sessions. Oh my goodness, wow. What an experience. I mean, and then he said, we'll get you home. And so I I just want to pay tribute to President Hinckley yeah. for his sensitive leadership skills. Yeah. They were magnificent. Wow. wow. And they go a long way. I mean, just in the little things, right? Yeah. Just the little yeah, things. The little things. Yeah. He paid attention to the little things. Wow. And so when, uh, uh, what year did you reach emeritus status? Uh, mm, Joni and I met and uh, were married in 2008. And President Packer sealed us. And I was then granted emeritus status the following year in October of 2009. Hmm. And I had been concerned about historical sources in Eastern Europe, that we were losing the pioneering experience of the first members. Many were getting older and dying. And so I, every time a general conference, I would talk with Elder Jensen, Marlon Jensen, about the history of the area and encouraging and hoping that they could do something more to preserve the records in Eastern Europe. Well, at a general conference after uh, I was granted emeritus status, Elder uh, Greg Schweitzer was serving as the area president, and we were having lunch with them during, in between sessions. And he said, I've got a deal for you. I've got a deal for you. <laughs> and then he said, we want you and Joni to come to initiate the church history program in Eastern Europe. So I was granted emeritus status in October of 2009. And then in January of 2011, we left on our mission. Hmm. And But President Packer called a few days before we left and invited us to come to his office. And as I mentioned, he had sealed us and I'd had wonderful experiences with him. And I thought he would just encourage us to do well and, you know, do yeah. something worthwhile, yeah. which I should have known better. <laughs> but we stepped into his office. He invited us to sit down few little pleasantries, that was it. And he said, well, we hear you're going back to Russia. I said, we are, President. He said, we knew that. 
He said, that's why we've decided to ordain you a patriarch. He pushed a button under his desk. Elder Nelson stepped in, and I was ordained a <laughs> patriarch by President Packer and Elder Nelson. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And uh, that was in on January 19th of 2011. And obviously it was different because it wasn't in a, it wasn't a stake president setting you apart and wasn't no, for a specific stake, but it was for it, specific it was, people. It was for the area. Wow. Yeah. And you still hold that calling today? I still hold that calling today. And, and what is that? Uh, I know you travel back there every few, every few uh, months or? It, it, I travel back last, this year it's been two times and in years past, it's been three, sometimes as many as four times a year that I've gone back to give patriarchal blessings. And do you just gauge it on what the demand is as far as how many people would like it? The, the mission president, the assignment to the mission comes from the area president. So I know that I, for this past year, for example, I would be in the Baltic states and in Ukraine. Hmm. And then once I receive that assignment, I work out the details with the mission president. Mm -hmm. We determine a time that would be convenient to the mission. That is, they have no mission tours or, you know, yeah. just we try to find a convenient spot where, gotcha. where I can fit in to the calendar of the mission without being too disruptive. Yeah. So on average, how much time do you spend there and how many blessings do you give on average? I... I up until this year, would give about five blessings a day. Hmm. This year, I this last trip, I just came home from Ukraine. I gave four blessings a day. Hmm. So over a two and a half week period with travel and a little rest time, uh, it would be around fifty or so blessings. Yeah, and, and you're not. I mean, you're traveling around giving these blessings. It's not usually traveling a bit. To, yeah. Wow. To, and I've talked to other patriarchs where they, they've talked about just the preparation that goes into each blessing. I mean, some of them could spend days or, you know, and, and all that. How do you manage all that? Obviously, you don't have the, uh, the benefit of preparing so long for each one. And I can't fast before every blessing either. <laughs> you never eat, right? <laughs> I never eat. Uh, the, uh, first of all, the preparation is both spiritual and linguistic. Hmm. Because I give the blessings in Russian, so I I spend part of every day studying Russian and trying to, in my studies, reading those things that would improve my vocabulary, mm. my blessing vocabulary, things that could could well be used in a in a blessing. Yeah, the I I have a list of those things I. And I study those things over. And in saying that, the preparation for a patriarchal blessing for me is different than any other calling I've ever had. I'm sure every patriarch would say that, that as a mission president or as a, as a uh, general authority even, and in your experience now in the stake presidency, you know you're not always on top of your game exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but you have experience, and you know what needs to be taught, and so you rely upon you rely upon your experience. Yeah, there are times that you you do write a formal talk and deliver it, but at many other times you don't. You can't do that. Uh -huh. right? So you rely on other means. And but as a patriarch, can't do that hmm. because. 
every blessing is the only blessing. Right, right. <laughs> wow. And so the preparation is, is as much spiritual, more spiritual than linguistic, but it's the language that you have to express it in, right? And so I do, you know, my scripture study I, uh, in Russian, I do as much as I can in Russian. The come follow me, I try to do as much as I can in Russian, though I can't quite keep up with it. <laughs> but, but, um, but those are the words I, uh, you know, studying true to the faith or, uh, the, the, um, guide to the scriptures in Russian. Those are all really good sources along with the Leahona the magazine. Uh, all of these are really good sources of vocabulary, uh, that, help me in my preparation linguistically to give the blessings. Another source of, of that is that the, there is a team of transcribers, Russian speaker, Russian speaking sisters who transcribe the blessings from the recordings and they will fix my language. If I've missed a, a word or a grammatical issues, grammatical issues, yeah. which I do in English too. Right. And, sure. Uh, but, uh, but I keep track of all of their changes. Oh yeah, that uh, making sure that it's a change you you really want, right? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that they'll say, yeah, that this is understandable, but you're better to use this word, gotcha, than that word. And yeah. So I'll I'll write that down and say this is the word I use in this circumstance, not this word. Yeah. So you typically go on a trip and, and give the, all these blessings, and then. Then you come home and that begins uh, as far as reviewing transcripts? Uh, then I, for example, I arrived home on the 21st of September of this year from Ukraine. I gave 50 blessings, which means that I have about 100 hours of, of work. Wow. So I've received all of the blessings now from the transcribers, but I can only do two or three a day mm -hmm. at, uh, to review and edit and make my edits is a very not only time consuming but emotionally and spiritually <laughs> intense i can imagine wow and so i'll spend uh the next month and a half reviewing the blessings that i gave wow over a two-week period and then i begin preparing for the next trip i bet i bet wow well what a incredible life and we i'm sure we've only skim the surface on some of these experiences, but uh, I appreciate these principles and, and concepts that we, we've reviewed. Uh, anything we're missing? I have one more question for you about anything we're missing that you want to make sure we include. Maybe there is one thing that I, I need to say and probably should have begun with this, but, and that is my deep, eternal gratitude to the Lord for the opportunities he's extended to. Without the church, without the callings I've had, I would have none of these experiences. And it's been an incredible education for me, for which I am so grateful to the Lord and to the Holy Ghost, because the things that I thought I was coming up with as a mission president or that I thought were the solutions to problems, they weren't my solutions at all. They were given. Hmm. And, and I think it's 
far too easy for us to take credit to ourselves for ideas or successes, when in actuality, the Spirit is in, around, and through this work, even in the smallest of details. Yeah. And we're given an opportunity for a short period of time to be part of it. And for that, I am really grateful. Awesome. Well, maybe to dovetail off of that answer, last question I typically ask is, as you look back on your life of uh, being a leader, how has have those experiences made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I've tried to do that. I, I look back at this point, I just turned 80, and I look back now at this point on all of the talks I gave about enduring to the end, and I begin to realize how thoughtless they were hmm. and how difficult it is to endure to the end. There is a reason that the Lord speaks about that repeatedly in the scriptures, because it's hard to do. For a younger person, it doesn't seem that hard, because you're busy in the stake presidency. You're busy interviewing. You're busy with missionaries. You're busy mm -hmm. with all kinds of wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Busy with your family. You're, you visit wards. You, people come to you for help. And then there comes a day when that doesn't happen anymore. And you're left with who you are. That you're not defined anymore by what you do or the calling you have. Then you're defined by, am I a disciple? Because there isn't anything else. Now, true, I serve as a patriarch, but that won't last forever. And I may yet have another 10 or 15 years where I won't, where I'm going to have to endure to the end. And so it's not as easy as it sounds, I've found, to endure and to stand steady at this age any more than it is at any other age. So I try to be a good follower, try to remember the things that I learned, but I can only apply them to myself now. I don't often participate in meetings because that kind of is the work of other brethren now. So I step back and I listen. And I learn, and once in a while I'll say something, but, but now it's, it's very personal, and I have to apply it in a different way than I did when I was traveling about the world as a general authority. Oof, we made it, guys, to the end of the interview, but wasn't it worth every minute? Bless your heart, Elder Nuenschwander. I so much appreciate this you sitting down with me and going through your stories and the rich leadership principles in this. I mean, so remarkable. It touched my heart, especially when he talked about President Hinckley. I miss President Hinckley so much. I mean, don't we all? That voice and that kindness and just who he was. Uh, man, I, 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 I miss him. And uh, again, thank you, Elder Nuenschwander. If you know of anybody else I should interview similar to, to Elder Nuenschwander, I would love to line that up. You can reach out to me at leadingsaints.org slash contact and there we can further communicate and uh, line it up. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the Core Leader community today.
It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.